Hello, and welcome to Children's Friendships Matter, a podcast about children's friendships post-COVID-19. In this episode, Dr Karen Carter talks to Professor Alison Clark, the author of Slow Knowledge and the Unhurried Child, about children's friendships through the lens of slow pedagogy, reflecting on what we might learn for both practice and future research directions. Here, they delve into some of the temporal issues that affect children, practitioners and teachers today. What impact does the organisation of time have on children's friendships? How might time support children's friendships? And how is time to play integral to children's friendships? Welcome, Alison, to this podcast. Could we start with you introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background and your role as an academic? Thank you, Karen, for this opportunity to have this conversation. Really looking forward to this. So I'm an early childhood academic and I'm Professor of Early Childhood Education at the University of Southeastern Norway. And I'm an honorary senior research fellow at Thomas Coram Research Unit, which is part of the Institute of Education, UCL in London, um, where I worked for many years. I was a primary school teacher in Bristol, working with the youngest children before beginning my research career. And uh, a common thread running through many of my research projects has been listening to children's perspectives, finding out what it's like to be children in a particular place at a particular time and to learn from that and just carry on understanding more and more about how children experience the world. That's great. Thank you very much. I'm aware that most people will know your work, but for anyone who wants to get familiar with your research, could you tell us a little bit about your research on listening to young children? So it's been around young children's perspectives, children under eight in, in the main, and particularly those whose perspectives are often assumed or rather than explored. My work in this area began in the 1990s, late 1990s, um, when I joined Thomas Coram Research Unit. And that study was to include the voices, as it was described, of the youngest children in a review of uh, services for children and families. And I was working with Professor Peter Moss and had that great privilege, which led to the development of the Mosaic Approach, a multi-method way of listening to children's perspectives and other particip older participants that aims to draw on people's strengths of whatever age really, and therefore to use um, a range of different modes of communication, including visual modes of communication through photography, but also walking and talking, and then use the things that you make through those conversations as uh, as a springboard for more conversations and hopefully for also learning and, and changing practice. So I remember one educator saying to me in an early project, I think this is about don't make assumptions. And I think that's a really important reminder for me to, to keep listening. Um, we might think we know what it's like to be other people, to be other children from other backgrounds, but we mustn't make assumptions. Several studies followed from that first study on listening to young children and uh, particularly around the physical environment. 
So I had a project Spaces to Play that was around changes to uh, a play space with uh, young children and adults. And then um, a three year study looking at changes to the physical environment in terms of um, including the building of a new nursery class within a primary school. So working with architects and with uh, educators and children. And so other researchers have taken on the work and have adapted the mosaic approach in their different ways, um, including in PhD research. Thinking back to the first study, the three and four year olds I was working with talked to me about friendship and about relationships. And a favorite activities were often associated with who they were with at the time. And children talked about the importance of siblings too, when they could have contact with siblings during the day at nursery, as well as who they didn't like to play with. That's so interesting. You know, the whole idea of not making assumptions. We only have memories of being children. We don't know what it's like to be a child in 2023. So I think that's so important, that idea of, of the, those assumptions. I always find it really interesting when, you know, when my son comes home and I, you know, say, what have you been doing at school? And you you kind of get the, mm, not much, or, you know, you don't really get that much. But then you say, who have you been playing with? And then that kind of often opens up a little bit more of a conversation. I think, you know, the idea of friendships is so very important to young children some of the things that we kind of take for granted or the assumptions we make, you know, we, we can really get it wrong, you know, if we don't listen. I've just, I was thinking as well about recently you've written a book, Slow Knowledge and the Unhurried Child, Time for Slow Pedagogies in Early Childhood Education, a really fascinating read. And I found that I've read it and then I'm going back to it or going back to particular chapters and looking at things that um, have really spoken to me. And I just wondered if you could tell listeners about the impetus or motivation for writing this book. Yeah, well, I think it it partly grew out of a, a growing concern with the always fast forward pace in education, with little time for um, educators or children to pause and reflect. And I think I've noticed that ac across the different country contexts in which I work, not just here in Scotland, where I'm based, uh, but also in, in other countries where I've been working. And I think hearing this concern from educators and researchers too, worried about the emphasis on the um, on the easy, easy to measure and the uh, scripted answers required from children. And so I applied to the Froebel Trust um, to research what are some of the alternatives to this hurry? What do we know from early childhood pedagogies going back over several centuries, looking at, OK, what might this have to do with our relationship with time? So it's not about uh, the new, but it's about a different relationship with time. It's more of a question, I think, of reclaiming some of these uh, ways of working that we, we, we've known, give children more opportunities for play, uh, but have perhaps become a little bit lost. Do you think this is, um, you know, the, the times that we have now, with, you know, post-COVID, cost of living crisis, um, you know, climate change, it perhaps is a particularly good time to start thinking about readdressing perhaps and looking at this again? When you say it's not nothing, it, it isn't anything new? 
Yes, well, I I think particularly because of the pandemic and how that's made many people, I think, more aware of of how they think about time. You know, with time having almost, in some senses, come to a halt, frozen time, but yet other people having to work kind of super fast in order to change practice. So, I think. It has been an opportunity to rethink. I'm not sure that opportunity has really been taken up very widely by those who lead us. Um, but I, I think it is a time, it is an opportunity. And I think there's still a chance to grasp that opportunity to, to rethink in education. I've noticed with your work on slow pedagogies and listening to young children has links to young children's friendship, which is, you know, why I was particularly interested in talking to you. For instance, if I just kind of draw a little bit on some of my research, so children's friendships are kind of made and nurtured through play. But as children start compulsory schooling in England um, in year one, there are less opportunities for free flow play. Um, and even playtime has restrictions. So I was thinking, you know, they go in the morning to school, there's a bell, they might have assembly, there's another bell, then it's a numeracy maths related activity, there's another bell, then it's English, another bell, there's break time, then there's a bell for playtime to finish and so on. When I spoke to children who were in this sort of five to seven age bracket, they explained to me that even the restrictions, you know, they realise playtime is a really good time to have, you know, to, to decide on what they wanted to play, what they wanted to do. There was no restrictions. But actually, then they went on to explain some of the challenges they had at playtime. So, for instance, some children explained that they had to do certain things. So they'd have 15 minutes, but they had to go in that time. They had to go to the toilet, then go and get their fruit. And then they went out to play it seemed that this was problematic for them because if they went to the toilet and got their fruit and then went out to play, when they got out there, games and play were already established. So, that, um, you know, they'd say things like, it's a two-a game or it's a five-a game or it's a three-a game, you know, and all the parts are taken. And this was then really tricky for them to gain access to the play once it was started. So it, it seemed that they had this dilemma of, do I go to the toilet when I'm supposed to and then I risk not being able to get into the play? Or do I not go to the toilet, but then knowing that I'll go back into the classroom and probably need the toilet? And if I ask to go to the toilet, I'll get in trouble. <laughs> so I just thought, gosh, that's that's so interesting. And again, it's, it's linked to this time pressure of those things have to be done at playtime because then when you come back in, it's time to start learning learning <laughs> in inverted commas and I just thought you know this kind of then has a real impact on children being able to make friends or maintain friendships that they have when I was reading your work those things that I kind of encountered with children came to the fore for me I thought oh yes you know that um it's really really interesting yeah, I, I think what you've described there is is the the impact of how time is organised in in schools on children, how how it then affects these very important but personal decisions about even how they're you know relating to their bodies 
being able to go to the toilet or not, deciding whether, okay, if I go to the toilet, then I'm, I'm going to miss out on a game outside. But that all, the bigger picture of that is how adults are deciding to organise the time and what are they giving priorities to. So if, for example, if a school was working a system where children could go to the toilet, for example, when they needed to during the day, then you take that pressure out of this very precious free play time at playtime. So, you know, how how time is organised can have a profound impact, I think, on, on children's everyday lives in, in schools. So one of the things my study was doing was talking to participants um, who were teacher educators and educators across 11 countries, talking and working in early childhood education. And, and they were reflecting with me around what pedagogies and practices they knew about that had a, a slower relationship with time, that was less hurried, and then to think with them about what that would enable. So a slower practice, for example, could be around everyday routines. So it could be around lunch times and how lunch times were organized. And some of the themes that we noticed were, you know, a slow practice could be one where children had the opportunity to go off track. So where, you know, it was a facilitated learning, but there was the opportunity for children to develop their ideas and to go into depth. So completely different from a very scripted, you need to learn this and then we'll measure you. I think in these type of slow practices where children are given more opportunities for what's being called unfragmented time. So unfragmented time, um, it's from a, a phrase I, I first heard by a, a, an American educator, Harriet Cafaro, who's worked with John Dewey's ideas. She talked about unfragmented time or stretched time. I love those two phrases. So if children are experiencing unfragmented time, it gives more opportunities for them to talk, to explore their ideas, for not to be so driven always by the bell and very tight timetables. Currently, I'm working with early years settings in Orkney. Two of the settings are, have decided to think about slow practices at lunchtime to sort of give them a way in really to thinking can we be less hurried across the day let's start with looking at lunch times how we organize it and then to look in detail about how the way they organize lunchtime what does that enable children to do and what does that kind of prevent them from doing for me part of that in a less hurried lunchtime you know do the children have opportunities to chat to each other is the time to you know is it a social event or is it just a kind of mechanical being fed you know, event? Is it seen as just, just the gap between morning school or, or um, nursery and afternoon? Or is it actually really uh, embraced as part of the day? And this sort of builds on an earlier practitioner study that um, I was involved in in Falkirk in Scotland. This was led by uh, Donna Green, who's the lead Frobel pedagogue in Falkirk. Two of the Falkirk earlier settings chose to look again at lunch times and how children's agency could be increased, how there could be less rushing, more chance to help themselves and each other. And I think, again, a more social event. I recently visited a, a preschool in, in Iceland. They've been thinking there over several years about mealtimes and democracy. And interestingly, one of the changes they made to the lunch times was that the children would there would be a sort of buffet system where children would come along 
choose from a, a choice of options, but children serving themselves. And then the children could also choose where they sit, sit and also who with. And that was really interesting, just watching the children coming in and you could see them sort of, you know, coming in with a friend or whatever and, and thinking where they wanted to sit, which might be in a different place on a different table. So it wouldn't work everywhere. But I think it was an interesting example of, OK, let's think about what does that organisation of time and what does that enable and what does that maybe prevent? And then to think together as a group of staff about that. That's so, so interesting, Alison, the things that you're talking about, particularly around lunchtime, because, again, in my research, children did talk a lot about lunchtimes and about wanting to sit with certain people or certain friends. And sometimes the table was full, so they couldn't sit with a friend. And again, those things were really, really important to them, but actually sometimes were barriers for them again in terms of like nurturing the friendships that they'd established I was thinking also back when you were saying that to when I first started teaching and I was working in an infant school and we used to have what they called family service and each table would have reception children year one children year two children they were mixed up and then the year twos would you know act like the parent almost and they would serve everybody's food you know so they might have you know uh, a lasagna or something and then they would serve the lasagna up to each of the children and so on it was very much like um you know a, a family meal and also I feel that that was really nice because children of different age groups it gave them opportunities to interact with different age groups and make friends with children in different age groups but I think the sorts of work that you're describing again I think it's sometimes we we do have to sort of take some time to sort of reimagine or re-question the things that we're doing and, and how that's working for children and again not make those assumptions we might think as adults it's working but is it actually working for children and I, and I think that is it working for children I guess that takes us back to the list, importance of listening as well because I think you know part of that is it working can be talking to members of staff who are working over lunchtime in different capacities also talking to talking to the children as well as well as observation so I think there are you know different ways of 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 thinking you know is this working and I'm sure it's often a case of trial and error as well you know that it's not necessarily going to be something you can change very easily because there might be timings involved in the number of children or in terms of catering schedules but I think it, it's such an important area to think about because of its impact on children's well-being and the quality of their day. And again, that brings me back to, I did a little bit of research with a particular setting that talked about well, that their lunchtime staff were lunchtime welfare supervisors. And it did really bring home to me the, the value of that role and the difference that can be made to those children because, it, 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 you know, it's a full hour often. Uh, so, so really, really important and I think really important to children, particularly socially. Going back to your book, Slow Knowledge and the Unhurried Child, I, I read the chapter three a couple of times, actually, on playtime. That starts by sort of addressing the impact of COVID-19 and how, what that had on children's opportunities for play and friendship. 
and of course, you know, that is something that I've been thinking a lot about because it's such an unprecedented situation that, you know, children were socially isolated. You know, they weren't with their friends. They couldn't be with their friends. And there were a couple of things that spoke to me in that chapter. A piece from Helen Dodd, who's Professor of Child Psychology, and Michael Absood, um, a consultant paediatrician, and they were talking about, so Helen was talking about time for children to reconnect and, you know, us making sure that children have that opportunity to reconnect. And Michael was addressing social play and he said he would prescribe it if he could. You know, it was, it was that important. He felt that, you know, this was something he would prescribe at this point. So I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the unhurried child and friendships post-COVID now we've got this new context that we find ourselves in. Yes, I was really um, struck by those comments by uh, Helen Dodd and Michael Absood. And I think emphasising the the importance for children coming out of this global event to have the opportunities to play and not to have the emphasis on, on, on catch up. I much prefer an emphasis on, on recovery, which I think is something that we still need to be thinking about. Um, so it seems even more important than ever to create more opportunities for play in school, especially in the view of this, all these lost opportunities for social interaction that many children have experienced. And I think in, in the research that has been conducted during um, COVID, and I think in, in your own work, looking at children's friendship, you can see huge creativity in children looking for ways in which to keep up these friendships online or for example in your examples of doorstop visiting where that's been possible so looking for any opportunity to keep the friendships there but also the challenge of needing to re-establish friendships when they've if they've seen being locked in at home and then coming back into school and nursery settings so many different skills for children to to, to relearn here so I think this recovery phase is vitally important. And one of the things that, that we need to do, I think, is to prioritise play, not just for the youngest children, but for older children too. As I was saying uh, about the catch-up narrative, you know, catch-up appears to be around, you know, this kind of concern to pour as much knowledge back into children. But we know from um, looking at established pedagogies that children learn far more by being able to explore firsthand for themselves, you know, facilitated by, by educators. But if we're looking at long-term learning and learning that, that includes enjoyment, then I think you know, we, we need these, these more opportunities for play. And I think that takes me back to that idea of, of stretch time. So when does the approach to the timetable limit the opportunities for children to engage in depth, which uh, may involve working collaboratively with others or perhaps companionably alongside others? So this kind of coming alongside others, I think sometimes I think of myself as being quite uh, quite a shy person, but I do love the company of doing things, something I enjoy, you know, knowing that somebody who I like is there. And I wonder with children, too, it's not just these opportunities to do things together in a group, but perhaps to have more opportunities side by side. I really like that idea of 
of, of the companion idea of, of, of doing something alongside. And I was also thinking about my experience in school sometimes that some children don't want to jump straight into something. Some children do and they want to participate immediately and some children don't and they want to observe and they want to see how it is for other people and then they will decide whether they want to participate or not. And it almost reminds me a bit of that really about that Again, that time that we might give for children and say, you know, do you want to participate or do you want to just observe what's going on here? And again, when there's been those gaps, socially particularly, you might not know what's coming or what's going to happen or you might want to just see what it looks like. And again, I was thinking about a child that I know who who um, doesn't particularly like football but would like to play football because they know that there's a social element to it. Um, but then at first was thinking, I have to have this skill in order to participate. But once they'd observed and they saw what it was about, they thought, oh, actually, they're just kicking the ball back and forwards to each other. There isn't really, um, you know, it's not like a full game or anything. It's just a knocking it back and forward. So I think it's that opportunity, again, to allow children to participate or to observe or, you know, at their own pace when they are ready to do so. And I think the idea of, of um, giving children opportunities to engage at their own pace is, is very imp important. And that pace will be different. So some children, yeah, you know, almost 99% of the time are on kind of fast forward, rushing around. You know. And so when I talk about slow pedagogies, it, it's not around slowing everything down to a kind of almost standstill but it's about this being sensitive to the different pace and rhythm of children and that will include some moments of really rapid um, attention and engagement but not necessarily all, all the time. So what I was going to ask you now uh, as a final question, what take home messages would you like the listeners to take away from this podcast? We've talked about quite a lot of things. So I just wondered if there was any anything in particular that you'd like people to take away with them. Well, I think it's maybe more a question of what questions uh, to, to think about. I mean, so I'm interested in what does slow enable? What do slow practices enable? So slow is not meant as a as a destination in itself, but it's more a question of thinking about, well, what, what becomes possible if we have a less hurried approach, if we think more explicitly about our relationship with time and then which children might might benefit most from this? Because, for example, if I take children who are coming in from um who uh, uh, English is a second or third language coming into a, a new setting for them in a new country. But so much learning socially, emotionally, intellectually needs to happen. Thinking of, through slow practices, I think, could enable those children to make a smoother transition into this very new environment. Um, so that might be, for example, in more opportunities to be outdoors, uh, it might be through uh, more opportunities to work with um, certain materials. I say, for example, in my book, I look at working with clay as, as a material that, that holds time in a particular way, that kind of enables children to 
work with it on many different levels and uh, uh, across time um, can use it as a, a one-off material but can also watch what happens when it dries watch what happens when it's fired and whether it's painted for example so there are these different examples I think of, of slow practices that that may be of particular benefit to children needing to work at a different pace and to enable children with different abilities to flourish and children including children with, with special needs and I think there's potential here uh, for more opportunity to support children's friendships as as our conversation has maybe showed so that's the my first question what what do slow practices enable and then a sec second question would be so how does the organization of time in early childhood education and care and in schools impact on children's lives because i think a lot of lot of our relationship with time in education is implicit rather than explicit we take it for granted that we work with timetables in a particular way that we work with the clock and many of those uh, routines are necessary but i think there's opportunity to rethink them and to think okay so what does working with time in this way what does it enable but what does it also prevent and then uh, uh, this third question I think is what opportunities do children have for unfragmented or stretched time to follow through ideas and to work in depth or to revisit earlier work and on that last question of revisiting I think that is also about how we relate to time you know Education does tend to be always fast forward. And I think there are very few opportunities for children to go back and look at what they have learned so they can kind of celebrate it. They can um, think about it again differently because our ideas will have changed. But I think because we split children into usually into different year groups, we move them through the system. And, you know, it's all about what they've done with the immediate learning rather than accumulative knowledge and I think as lifelong learners it's around how we how we embrace the learning that we've done over time and I think our education systems need to be better at supporting children to do that. And there's a lovely example in your book of that isn't there where you go back to a child and talk to them about it's a few years later you talk to them about their previous learning and I, I think that's a really nice example because, again, it's like you say, we don't really have time to do that. But actually, children really do like to revisit that and to really talk about things. It's almost as if we think they won't remember, but they do. They have amazing memories for these things. And it's a really nice example in the book of being able to go back to children and, and talk about, you know, that that learning in other year groups or, or what's gone before. It was something that really struck me as a researcher. So I was lucky enough to be working on a three-year study and uh, with the, in the Living Spaces study. So I, I, I taught with children when they were in uh, a nursery class and in reception class and then went back 18 months later and talked to them again about the changes to the physical environment. And it was great being able to take in the work that they'd made with me and to their photographs and their maps and things and sit down and chat to them. And then it struck me as a person who had been a, a primary school teacher thinking so few opportunities in the system to do this because we're always working towards the next target set of targets. And but the, those children were really interested in what they'd done before and and had things to say about it. I think there is more more room for us to 
give children the, 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 these opportunities to revisit and I think maybe to not make assumptions about uh, what children remember and what they don't remember because my research has taught, taught me that actually children remember far far more than we might imagine. And just one final thing, I like that point of you saying about, you know, it might be um, children with additional needs or refugee children or, um, and I was thinking about particular children after COVID, because sometimes there's an assumption now that COVID's happened and children have caught up and they've moved on. But I was just thinking about Christine Pascal and Tony Bertram's research that that talks about the long lasting effects of, of COVID for some children. And again, you know, thinking about those individual children or individual groups of children that, you know, we could do with really thinking about how we can support them and listen to them. Yes, absolutely. And I think sometimes in rethinking some of these organisational and pedagogical structures, it can benefit a whole range of children, but maybe some children, maybe the, the less visible children in particular. That's great. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to talk to you, Alison. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Karen. It's, it's been great to have this conversation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information on Karen's research and other related podcasts, please visit https colon forward slash forward slash research dot shu dot ac dot uk forward slash friends. This podcast was made possible by a fellowship opportunity funded by Sheffield Hallam University. Mm -hmm.